So Acts 4, starting at verse 5, going to 12. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the Torah met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if, you, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus the Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by, but whom God has raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given to humanity by which we must be saved. And then John 10, starting at verse 11. These are the words of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs because he is a hired hand and cares for nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. May God be blessed in the reading of his holy scriptures this morning. I was asked a good question this week by someone learning about faith issues. I had just described how faith was once being among working with hurting, and loving all others no matter what, challenging the oppressors alongside the oppressed. These Jesus people didn't care what their organization looked like. They didn't care who was in charge, who did the teaching, or where they met. They didn't look for thanks, church membership, or give up when someone didn't change like they wanted. They cared solely about living a life of shalom, of peace, a life abundantly for all. If there wasn't enough, it's described in the books of Acts, they gave. If someone had too much power, they challenged. It was costly for sure in time given and friends and family that didn't want to follow this way. And for some, they even lost their lives. But all of them sensed it was worth it. They wanted to follow their Jesus no matter what. That was how it was for a good portion of our church history. And now for most people in North America, faith in Jesus means an escape from an earthly realm into a heavenly bliss. It means not engaging, not challenging, keeping the peace, not shalom meaning we live orderly lives that do not stir up any trouble. We have a good family, we have good morals, we appear religious, and we attend a weekly service, even online. A dramatic shift from how we started. This person then asked me what happened. Why did Christians change so much? 
And I tried to unpack all that really quickly, and it's pretty challenging, isn't it? I said there's a long, complicated history of empire and power and politics entering the church, but if I could put it succinctly and quickly, I would say this. It got too hard, so the church looked instead to comfort. Perhaps we need to look more like the Good Shepherd. This passage is an extremely challenging passage for us all because the Good Shepherd is the call to us all. The Good Shepherd will not abandon like the hired hand when who sees the wolf coming, who abandons the sheep and runs away. So today we're going to look at this passage and try to work out what does it mean to be more like the Good Shepherd. Well, to get to there, you have to ask the question, what precedes this passage? Why is Jesus all of a sudden saying these bold statements? I am the good shepherd. Where does that come from? Why is he saying this stuff? Well, what precedes it is a healing story. It's a beautiful healing story at the beginning of John 9. There's a man born blind, and the disciples walk up to this man and ask a good godly question of the day. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? And Jesus hears this triumphal accusation towards this man. Obviously, he was not a good man or whatever, or his parents weren't good people, and, and there's some sort of accusation that God is out to get the people who aren't very good by giving them some sort of uh, debilitating disease or something like blindness. And Jesus will have none of that. Jesus says to the person or to the disciples, none of that happened for those reasons. This happened that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, then Jesus spits on the, the ground, makes a little mud, puts it on his eyes, and then the man sees. A miracle, a beautiful time for sure, only it was the Sabbath the holy day of the week in which the Jewish folks of the day were to have rested. It was a day set aside, as everybody would have said at the time, and we still do to this day, that it was set aside for nothing but God. How dare you heal on this day? The accusations start, and that's actually going from the rest of chapter 9 into this part of chapter 10 is just a whole bunch of accusations and, and communications, and so they, they go to the man, the, 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 the Israelite leaders, go to the man and say, who healed you? What happened here? And he said, go ask my mom, and they say to the mom, what happened? He was healed. And who asked him? Oh, go back to him, and they go back to him and said, who happened? What happened here? And they say, it was this man. So then they find Jesus, and he says to them, I am the good shepherd. So what does all of that have to do with what their accusation is? Because the conversation is around Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath. What's the, what's the problem with the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath? What was the big point of it all? Well, in, in Jesus' day, the Israelites, especially the Israelite leadership, were trying to demonstrate that they were set apart. They were different from everybody else. God didn't truly love those people. He only truly loved us. So they were trying their best to demonstrate the us-ness, how, how we were so different than everybody else. So they kind of flipped through Torah and picked out a few ideas that really demonstrated that they were different. 
Everybody else worked every day of the week because they were just trying to survive. They didn't have grocery stores to go to. They didn't have a Walmart to go get their stuff. So survival was based on working every single day, working hard every single day. Empires would make sure that slaves worked every single day. And so Jesus, or the, the people in Jesus' day, the Israelites, demonstrated that they were God's true people by upholding Sabbath. They were different people. They were totally different people. They were the people God loved because they upheld Sabbath. And so no non, no true Israelite would ever, ever do anything but honor God on the Sabbath. And here's Jesus healing on the Sabbath. So they're pulling out all sorts of attacks on him, saying, you are not the true Jesus. You are not the true Messiah. You are not the true one who is going to lead us. You can't possibly be a good leader if you think that you can heal on the Sabbath. That's the accusation. That's the reason for it. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Now, shepherd, if you follow through the Hebrew scriptures, what we would commonly call the Old Testament, is a, is a way of describing leadership. Describing leadership. In fact, if you look in Ezekiel 34, they talk about negative leadership or poor leaders. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel 34. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only care for yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of their flock? You eat curds, clothe yourselves with wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally." That was what the poor shepherd looked like. A poor leader looked like in, in that day. That was the accusation, what it looked like. But they were waiting for the good shepherd, the good leader. Psalm 78 describes it like this. He chose David his servant. In other words, the anointed one. And took him from the sheep pens one of their own. From tending the sheep, he brought them to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. Jesus was declaring he was the true good shepherd. He was the true good leader. He wasn't the one leading people astray. He was the one doing those things in Ezekiel that they were accused of doing. That he was saying, he, you have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. Jesus was doing those things. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. Jesus was doing those things. He was doing the positive of those things. He was the good shepherd. So what makes him the good shepherd? What makes him the good shepherd? He breaks all the bounds of what was holding everything else back. The first thing that he did was he was not like the hired hand. The shepherd will stay. The shepherd will stay even if it costs everything. The shepherd will stay even if it costs everything. The image that Jesus uses here is of a wolf attacking the sheep. 
So the shepherd is, is, is uh, standing in front of the wolf, and all of his sheep are behind him. And he said at that point, the hired hand would leave. The hired hand would say, this is my life. I don't want to give up my life. There's no way I would give up my life for these things behind me. I don't own the things behind me, so I'm going to scatter. And Jesus said, the good shepherd stays, even if it cost him everything. The good shepherd stays, defends the one, defends the helpless, defends the weak. Peter's defense against this is, is a good demonstration of how Peter and John were living out this Jesus imagery to be the good shepherds themselves. Why were Peter and John brought before the leadership in, of, of the day? Well, they had healed as well. So they were brought, doing the exact same thing that Jesus was doing. They were taking care of their sheep. And now instead of running away from the accusation, they stood in front of the accusation. They stood in front of it. When it got challenging, when it got hard, they remained there. The point of being the good shepherd is to stand in the face of it. Even when it gets challenging, even when it gets hard, we're to stay there. We're not supposed to flee. And I would say that's one of the key things that we can learn from Jesus afresh, is to be people who remain, people who stay when it gets hard. And these last couple of years have been getting hard, haven't they? These last couple of years, it's been really challenging to take care of and, and, and uphold and to, to love. It's going to get hard. It's going to get challenging, Jesus said. And what kind of people are you going to be? Are you going to be the, the, the hired hand who flees when it gets challenging? Or are you going to be like the good shepherd and stay when it gets hard? Now, this is the opposite of the attractive model, which is presently going, being taught in the church that says, come and it will be easy. Come, we will make you members. Come and I will give you a parking spot. Come and it'll be really nice. We'll do delightful music and you will enjoy yourself. Come, 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 yay. That's not the way Jesus attracts people, is it? Jesus doesn't say, come and it will be easy. He says, come and it'll be really hard, but it will be life. Because most of us have gone to this middle of life, which is comfort. Most of us have avoided the painful things of life because we've just gone to what is comfortable. We have become like the hired hand. We've gone to the places where we're just trying to have a nice time. We're trying to have a nice meal and a nice family and be nice to each other. And Jesus didn't say that we're supposed to be nice. He said we're supposed to have life. And life is good. Life is joyful. Life is wonderful. But life is also hard. Life is really challenging. And what he said is that we don't flock to the middle of comfort and security. He said it will actually be a challenge to everything. It will cost you financially. It will cost you your security. It will cost you your reputation. Because where you go and what people will say about you, even the ones you love and try to help, will always be challenging. You will challenge and things won't change. Or you will challenge and things will change slowly. Or they will cost you as they change. Or the pressure of the system will force you to be something you don't want to be. And sometimes life gets too much for all of us in this. 
But this is life. This is it. Our two options of life are to build a bigger fence and try to avoid that there's pain in the world or rip the fence down and say, I want to get involved. I want to challenge and be there with, and I want to be among. And the beauty of this passage is Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. In other words, when we go to those places of pain and loss and struggle, Jesus is already there. He is our good shepherd when we get there. He is the one who is loving us right there in the middle of that thing we call life. Yes, it's safer to stay in a private club where we put up the membership rules like only honor the Sabbath and we will demonstrate to this whole world that we're holy and everybody else isn't. We can do that for sure. And we can pretend it's another problem. It's other people's problem. Maybe it's a city problem. And we can, yes, it's stay, safer to stay comfortable and build a bigger fence and pretend the problems of the world are far away or somebody else's problem. It's safer that way. But is it life? Is that life? You could get involved. You could get involved. You could become part of. Yes, you could stay comfortable, but just don't call it church. You could stay comfortable, just don't call it Jesus. Because that's not Jesus. Jesus did not call us to comfort. He called us to life. He called us to shalom. And our shepherd will stay with us and calls us to. Jesus, the good shepherd, breaks the bounds of safety. The second thing that Jesus does as the good shepherd is he gives us intimacy. I love how it says this, I know my sheep like my father knows me. I know my sheep like my father knows me. So many of us are struggling for this type of knowledge, especially in a Zoom-based world where we're so distant from one another. I have felt the lack of intimacy in this last year. Have you as well? I have felt it in, in our relationships, things that we take for granted, like having coffee with one another. I find the most important moments are those moments where you just get to sit with somebody and be present with somebody. And you don't have to say anything. I miss that so much. I miss just being there with people. I miss the intimacy. And Jesus inviting us into an intimacy of community. He said, I know my sheep like my Father knows me. There's a beautiful intimacy in it. And we say, well, maybe it's this platonic intimacy that we just kind of keep each other and we're kind of in community with one another and we know a few facts about one another. And I'd bring you instead to this story of this woman with the alabaster jar. Do you remember the story of the woman with the alabaster jar? This is the woman who smashes a jar of nard, a, a product that was supposed to be saved for her dowry, for her marriage, for, to a man. But instead, she smashes it and puts it all over Jesus, this beautiful nard, this smelling beautiful uh, perfume, and puts it all over Jesus, using her long hair to make sure that it massages correctly right into him, putting her hair down. What is that an image of? 
That's an image of what you do for your husband on a wedding night, taking your hair down. This is really scandalous stuff that is happening. And what does Jesus say about her? Not that she's scandalous, but that she has done one of the most beautiful acts in the history of the world and should be remembered forever. Jesus says those bold, beautiful words. In other words, let's have intimacy with one another. We are to be intimate with one another. We are to love our Jesus like that. A very truly delightful, wonderful thing. And it's shapes and it's scandalous and it's nasty and it's, it's weird and all of us get kind of uncomfortable when we talk about that because some of us don't even know how to hug one another. And we were brought up in houses where you kind of just say, I love you, from a distance. And you say, I love you, by say, did your oil get changed? We don't say the words, I love you, even to each other. And Jesus is calling us to an intimacy, a delightful intimacy with one another and with our God and with Jesus. This is the thing that he is calling us to. So he is the good shepherd because he breaks the bounds of safety. He's the good shepherd because he breaks the bounds of intimacy. And he's the good shepherd because he calls us beyond our tribal boundaries. Did you hear what he says here? I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. In the Jesus day, what did that mean? It meant the Gentiles. Jesus is saying to those who just said, you can't heal on the Sabbath because we are true Israelites, therefore we're different from everybody else. We are the true tribe of God. Jesus says, no, we are all God's beloved. We are all God's beloved. We are all his kids. We are all his children. What an amazing idea. So many of us have been taught throughout our life that we need something to deserve the love that we receive. I love that Gems idea that we are the beloved, right? That we are already loved. That we were already loved by God. And this is where Jesus is demonstrating it to us. He says he's smashing the tribal boundaries. He's not saying one unique group of people are loved because they are somehow closer to God. He is saying all of that, all of the people on the planet, every single one of them, think of somebody that doesn't deserve to be loved by God. They too are loved by God. They too are being sought by God. They too are being sought by Jesus to be drawn in, to be protected by this good shepherd, to be invited into intimacy, and to be part of this amazing family that is all part of it. What, is, what does that look like? It looks like the image of the prodigal son. The prodigal son, if you, if you look at the story, is, is a story of, of two brothers. Two brothers and a father. And, and if you're telling that story to, to an ancient Israelite, they would have heard very clearly who is who in the story. Because they would have had two brothers. One stayed very loyal. One stayed very pure. One stayed as a hard worker for God. One stayed hard working for the father. And the other just went off and hung out with pigs and did all sorts of nasty, terrible things. And you wouldn't have had to ask too many Israelites in Jesus' day, who is, who is who in the story? And they would have said, the good son is Israel. They were the ones who stayed close to their God, that's for sure. And the bad son, that's obviously the Gentiles, who were once loved by God, we know that, but 
they went off and they did nasty, nasty things. They're terrible people. And what does Jesus say at the end of the prodigal son story? That that Gentile is coming back. That that son is coming back. The one who did all the nasty, terrible things, who abandoned their God, that one's coming back. And what do we do for the one who came back? The one who abandoned God for so long, what do we do for that one? We have a party. We celebrate the goodness of God in love and in parties. And we, the ones who have stayed loyal the whole time, got jealous and upset. We see that all through the Jesus narratives when Jesus starts inviting all the wrong people to be part of the tribe. They get upset and say, why are you inviting that person? Why are you inviting that person? Why are you inviting that person? And Jesus says, it's a party. And why don't you come in and join the party? Let's be all part of this beloved thing. I have sheep that are elsewhere, and I'm going to go get them too. And I'm going to go get them too. And how does he go get them? Well, as the sheep is confronted by, or the shepherd is confronted by all the nastiness of all the world, the shepherd dies for the sheep. The shepherd dies for the sheep gives his life for the sheep in love for the sheep. And Jesus gave his life for all of us and invites us in that great love to follow him. He invites us in that great love to follow him and become like the good shepherd, to continue to persevere even when it gets hard, to break down the bounds of intimacy and say we need to be further connected with one another. We need to be in this together. We need to have vulnerability and trust with one another. We need to be in this together. We need to rely on one another. We need to share all of our nastiness with one another. We need to be intimate. We need to learn to trust. And finally, when we do those things, we will be the people of invitation that take in all the tribes, all the other people of all the planet, and say they are part of this too. And how do we do that? With parties. With parties. Now, that's hard to do on Zoom, isn't it? And it's hard to do with drive-by visits and waves with masks on. So I'm looking forward to that day when we get a declaration that we can actually do this again. But I think the church of all places should be the place of the greatest party of all when we can. Would you agree with me on that one? I think so too. It should be an invitational party that says we are all part of the beloved. We're not partying because we're the unique called by God people who sit on our own. No, we are the invitation partying people who are going to have all of us. We are the prodigal son celebrating with the prodigal dad and the, that, that, that really good brother. And we'll all hang out together being part of this great big party. All right, I've said a lot, so let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for the challenge of it. Thank you for the, the goodness of it. And we want to be like that good shepherd. We want to first of all admit that we want to follow that good shepherd, the one who would lay down his life for us. When the wolf came and, and the, the, the pains of this world overtook him, instead of walking away like the hired hand, he stood his ground and that caused called everything from him, including his life. We thank you for that good shepherd. 
the one who gave his life for all of us in love. Help us now to follow that good shepherd. Follow that way of, of living, of not giving up when it gets hard, of not giving up when it gets challenging, of not giving up when people don't convert, of not giving up when people don't become members, of not giving up when, when their life is, is, gives us a bad reputation, of never, never giving up for love of the sheep. Help us to be people of intimacy and love and trust and vulnerability. And help us to be people of invitation and parties. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.